0: following program is a podcast1.com production
1: Fading in fading out on the edge of paradise every inch of your skin is a holy grail i've got to find Only you can set my heart on fire on fire
2: You're listening to the Brady Sanella's podcast and I'm here at the podcast one studios in Beverly Hills with my guest the screenwriter Kelly Marcel. You can guess which book these sentences originated from a very tiny underused part of my brain probably located at the base of my medulla oblongata near where my subconscious dwells comes the thought he's here to see you or this oh my sweat and body washing christian is a heady cocktail so much better than a margarita and now I can speak from experience. Or this. I flash at the waywardness of my subconsciousness. She's doing her happy dance in a bright red hula skirt at the thought of being his. Or this. Suck me, baby. His thumb presses on my tongue and my mouth closes around him, sucking wildly. Holy fuck, this is wrong, but holy hell, is it erotic. Or... Sitting beside me, he gently pulls my sweatpants down, up and down like a whore's drawers, my subconscious remarks bitterly. In my head, I tell her where to go. Christian squirts baby oil into his hand and then rubs my behind with careful tenderness. From makeup remover to soothing balm for a spanked ass, who would have thought it was such a versatile liquid? Or this, he reaches between my legs and pulls on the blue string, what, and gently pulls my tampon out and tosses it into the nearby toilet. Holy fuck, sweet mother of all, jeez. Or this, put the chicken in the fridge, he says. This is not a sentence I had ever expected to hear from Christian, and only he can make it sound hot, really hot, and everyone's favorite. His voice is warm and husky, like dark melted chocolate fudge caramel or something. If you hadn't guessed by now, those are a few key sentences from the first volume of the Fifty Shades trilogy, Fifty Shades of Grey by E.L. James, a.k.a. Erica Mitchell. And to be fair, the books were created as Twilight-inspired fan fiction with Bella and Edward, replaced by Anastasia, a virginal college senior who works in a hardware store outside of Vancouver, Washington, and ends up meeting and then dating Christian Gray, a 27-year-old billionaire who lives in Seattle and who enters into a light BDSM relationship with him, the only way Christian can really get off. The books came from the mind of a former TV executive wife and mother based in West London in her late 40s, which helps explain why the details in the sex scenes and the dialogue have no... relation with what two American kids in their 20s would be up for and instead lean toward what an older British housewife might find kinky and a turn on. Without being good or anyone liking them, the books, for whatever reason, have sold upwards of 100 million copies and have been translated into 52 languages. The branding and packaging of this material was brilliant. The shrewdness of taking this very poorly written sex fantasy and making it seem, through its branding and packaging, far more erotic and dirtier and upscale was definitely a factor in women feeling okay to buy Fifty Shades. And there was also nothing really like it in mainstream commercial fiction. It's hard to tell what makes certain books attain this kind of success. Word of mouth, sure. I guess, but it really is luck and fate, and its success is something as random as winning the lotto. Huge bestsellers usually come out of nowhere. And what was newish and interesting about Fifty Shades is that it also hinted at the future of publishing, because this was at first a self-published e-book that gained some traction and notoriety before it became a phenomenon. After it was picked up by vintage publishers here in the States, the writer at first bypassed everyone and simply posted her fan fiction and then got noticed, the beginning of the two democratization of publishing the future. I picked up the first book, actually downloaded it, even though I hate reading fiction on my iPad, but I didn't expect I to get far with this one I was just curious reading non-fiction on my iPad has become the norm for me but reading fiction I want to hold the actual book and though uh, the writing was as bad as I had expected, it didn't really bother me. And there was something about the book that kept me swiping pages, not only vaguely wanting to know where this was all going to end, but also seeing if James was going to be able to write an actual hot sex scene. But no, the book never became erotic. It was, however, the screenwriter in me thought, most certainly a movie. This was apparent to me by the time I got to page 30, and I became more and more convinced of this as the book kept advancing. Two American 20-somethings fall into a BDSM relationship because the boy gets off on the control and doesn't do romance. I'm 50 shades of fucked up, Anastasia, our hero exclaims at one point. And the girl who really wants his love without spankings and ropes has her doubts about this ever working out in her favor. And this first novel in the trilogy ends with their breakup. A movie was all there in the book, and maybe the first person present tense prose helped reinforce this idea. Two characters in an interesting dynamic, and the arc of their relationship is dramatized through a series of sex scenes, from the girl losing her virginity to the whipping she gets at the end that causes her to shut the relationship down, devastating her, the choice she feels she has to make. What the screenwriter would simply have to do is rewrite most of the dialogue and reimagine these young American kids as not sounding like British twits in their late 40s. The structure is there, though there would have to be some rejiggering in the last quarter of the book. Also, for me, there was the chance to revisit and update a kind of version of Patrick Bateman, and the idea of writing for that character was as interesting to me as were the power shifts within the relationship. Reading Fifty Shades while working on the script for the micro-budget movie Paul Schrader and I were financing ourselves influenced the Canyons as well, where I was writing about my own Christian and the power plays going on within the relationship of another millennial couple. I lobbied for the job as screenwriter primarily via Twitter in a very determined and sincere way once it was announced that Focus Features had the rights and that E.L. James had handpicked Mike DeLuca and Dana Bernetti to produce. And my Twitter barrage consisted of posts about how I would approach certain scenes, sex things up even more, casting ideas I'd ask my followers about. Ian Summerholder and Matt Bomer seemed to get the most mentions from women in social media. All coalesced into rising levels of fans pushing me for the job. Some even thought because of the incessant tweeting about shows that I had the job already. And this led to a meeting with DeLuke and Bernetti. even though my manager at the time told me that he heard that a woman was going to be hired to write the script and that a meeting with them would be meaningless. But in my Fifty Shades delirium, I asked him to set it up anyway. I knew both Mike and Dana, and in retrospect, it seemed to be merely a meeting to calm me down a bit and maybe stop tweeting so much about this project I was going to have no involvement in. And because the mainstream press was writing about how I was pushing for this job on a weekly, if not daily basis, and this had become a bit of a delicate PR headache for the Fifty Shades of Grey team, The meeting went well, I guess, in terms of everything being on the same page about my ideas, but it was, in retrospect, not a real meeting. I was never going to be asked to write that script, though I didn't know it yet. In fact, I didn't know it until I met Erica Mitchell, E.L. James, herself, at a birthday party for Rob Pattinson, who was Erica's first choice for Christian, duh, in the hills of Silver Lake and where she told me that it was never going to be in the cards for me. Well, then why didn't you just tell me whenever I tweeted about this or tweeted at you, Erica, to stop, I asked. She answered, because I didn't want the tweets to stop. They were very entertaining and I was amused by them. Yes, Kelly Marcel was eventually hired to write the script and Sam Taylor Johnson will be directing with Erica producing alongside DeLuca and Brunetti. Dakota Johnson would star with Charlie Hunnam, who later dropped out and was replaced by Jamie Dornan. So a major Universal Studios release, a hard R sex movie with an unhappy ending, was going to be written by a woman, produced by a woman, and directed by a woman. In the sexist corporate culture of Hollywood, this is rare to the point of non-existent and can be looked at as a radical thing. The movie opened this year on Valentine's Day, and it's so much better than the book that you might actually make the mistake of thinking that you're seeing a good movie. What was missing from the movie of Fifty Shades was the chance to give the built-in global audience something real, and that also for an event movie would cross the line in terms of its representation of sex, showing explicit, though non-porn, sex scenes that relate the drama of the story instead of resorting to soft focus and montage while Beyoncé sings over the soundtrack. Why not just go for it? Why not in this day of easily available porn, just go for it? Get dirty. Get real. Boy, was I naive. Like all studio movies, 50 Shades remains resolutely a fantasy, even though it is a rarity. A $40 million R-rated studio movie without special effects, about two adults in a relationship. For a while, the movie casts a spell. Sam Taylor-Johnson shoots the movie beautifully, though in a glossy and impersonal way. And the leads seem well cast. The male model-turned-actor Jamie Dornan is both gorgeous and a good actor, as anyone who has seen him playing the serial killer Paul Spector in the BBC crime drama series The Fall can attest. Christian is the harder role to play, and on the first viewing of Fifty Shades, Dornan seemed oddly reticent, almost embarrassed by what is required of him, and not threatening enough, and it looks like he has a hard time saying, later's baby, though who wouldn't, perhaps the most quoted phrase from the book other than, holy crap. And women I know complain that Dornan Seemed more like an erotic object for gay men Than for straight women The women I knew wanted someone burlier A more obviously masculine man than the boyish Finely featured Dornan He's way prettier than Dakota Johnson But on a second viewing, the performance makes more sense When you notice that Dornan is playing it With certain layers of conflict That deepen the one-note fantasy Christian From the book, though he is trapped within The conception of a character who still Seems like a 50-year-old British barrister Rather than a 27-year-old American American boy billionaire, and what he would probably be into sexually in this day and age. Ostrich feathers over fleshlights? I don't think so. Dornan plays it the only way it can be played, robotic with hints of vulnerability, and when he reveals he was the submissive in a relationship with one of his mother's friends from the ages of 15 to 21, uh, that's a movie I want to see. Dornan suggests an addict losing his grip. The completely endearing Dakota Johnson holds the movie together. Even with some of the same British woman in her 40s dialogue intact, she remains convincingly youthful and American by giving her line readings a lovely hesitancy. She has an incredibly likable and wholesome and flatly bemused quality to her, and she brings the movie its only recognizable humanity. It's not in the material. It's in the way she delivers lines. The first scene, the office interview, like most scenes in the movie, is taken entirely from the book, is perfectly put together and organized, and it effectively builds on the anticipatory nature that's inherent in the material. We're waiting for them to start fucking, and the suspense is, okay, when is it going to happen? Ultimately, there's no art here, just professionals getting a job done. The movie isn't gross, like the book. It's classed up, and the makers downplay the exaggerated tone of the prose. It's upscale designer porn now, a princess fantasy with a light BDSM kink edge, antiseptic and not erotic, but mildly sexy at times. And the helicopter ride over Seattle at night, gliding high above the fog, while Ellie Golding sings, "'Love Me Like You Do' is a rush.'" As with most adaptations, the book becomes a trap, and if you listen to enough people involved in the making of the movie, most of the aesthetic failings in its last half had to do with the amount of control E.L. James had over the adaptation. As a writer who has wished I had more control over the adaptations of my work, I totally get where E.L. is coming from as a protective parent, but I'm not sure she understood what this movie needed. And the main problem with Fifty Shades is its slack third section, which was also a problem with the book, and this section would need the heaviest lifting from whoever was adapting it. You're going to have have to come up with an alternative, something less wandering and repetitious than the book. But E.L. wanted a fidelity to the book that she assumed would satisfy the fans. And because this wasn't allowed to be rethought, the movie goes off the rails, wobbling around until the final whipping. The first sex scene doesn't arrive until about 45 minutes into Fifty Shades, more than two-hour running time. The losing of Anastasia's virginity, and it's not a cheap compared to what we usually see in American movies, which are so squeamish about sex. But you may ask yourself when it's over, if porn is so available, then hasn't it made something like Fifty Shades of Grey antiquated and meaningless – Well, when a movie makes $600 million in its theatrical release alone, that question becomes moot. And Kelly Marcel and Sam Taylor-Johnson will not be part of Fifty Shades Darker, the sequel, though no one knows who the director will be. E.L. James' husband will be writing the script for that. Kelly Marcel did the adaptation for Fifty Shades of Grey and receives the sole writing credit, though other writers were brought on board by both the director and the studio, including Patrick Marber, who wrote Closer, brought in by the director. Though watching the movie, I had absolutely no idea what he contributed it. And the studio brought in Mark Bomback, whose credits include Wolverine, the remakes of Total Recall and Race to Witch Mountain, as well as Dawn of the Planet of the Apes and the first movie in the Divergent series – And I also have no idea what he contributed either. And his hiring should give you some kind of insight into how studios think of their projects. The screenwriter of Live Free or Die Hard might just be the guy to fix Fifty Shades. Marcel was also one of the writers on Saving Mr. Banks as well as creating the television show Terra Nova. And we'll get to those projects and other subjects later in the podcast. But Kelly, for people who are interested in how certain writers get certain gigs – The Fifty Shades of Grey hiring is kind of unprecedented. The novelist is given carte blanche to choose who she wants to adapt the book, and that never really happens. I mean, so this is a very unusual production in the studio world. It it doesn't really work like that most of the time. The novelist getting her say about who should write the script. So, Kelly, how did you get this job, which was one of the most coveted screenwriting jobs in recent years?
3: Yeah, uh, the yeah, that was a, a crazy one. Um, with Fifty Shades, uh, Fifty Shades came about when I was still on the set uh, for Saving Mr. Banks. So um, John, some directors like writers to be on the set and some directors don't. John Lee Hancock wanted me on set every day for Saving Mr. Banks. So I was very busy with that film. Um, when the, Mike DeLuca uh, and Dana Brunetti started chasing me for Fifty Shades, they had read Saving Mr. Banks and they felt like what fifty shades needed was uh, the characters to be three dimensional and 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 they were much more interested in that than who could write sex scenes or not um and at the time i hadn't read it and and to be fair i wasn't interested in doing it so i passed um and then i <laughs> Because it's Hollywood, people don't like it when you say no. And so they carried on pursuing me, and I uh, eventually agreed to read the book. Um, And I read it, and then having read it, much like you, uh, by page 30, I was like, oh, this is a movie, and it's something really, really interesting. And, And for me, the character of Christian, being somebody who had been abused and using sex as a kind of catharsis was really fascinating to me and i actually felt like this could be a a really interesting and moving story and so i agreed to go and meet everybody and i could only really take one day out of the set so where i I know there were lots of other writers who were having to work up pitches and they were having to go in on these kind of endless meetings because it was a huge room full of people i actually said that I couldn't work up a pitch, and that I would come in, and that I would say hello, and um, potentially have a coffee with Erica. But that that was all I could do. And weirdly, that kind of did it. I think, in a way, just the fact that I was like, "Look, I, you know, uh, the proof of my writing is already in a screenplay that you've read. I can, I can tell you kind of what I think is interesting about this book, but I can't do you an outline. I'm not going to work you up a pitch." But uh, Eric, I, I think Erica and I also immediately got on with each other. I really love Erica. And um, she and I just kind of had the same sense of humor and we felt the same things about the book. So that and, and, like, and like you said, it was her decision in the end and she was sold and that was it.
2: Well, I was going to ask you, what was your initial approach to the material? I mean, how were you going to approach it before anyone had their say? And when did you realize... That this whole thing, in a way, was kind of completely out of your hands as a screenwriter. I mean, did you ever feel straitjacketed by what you could and could not do with the material? Were there impositions, uh, things imposed upon you? What was your initial instinct in how to adapt that material?
3: Um, you know, I, the book's the book. And when you're adapting a book, you know, you have um, a blueprint. But I very much wanted to do something different with the Mm -hmm. screenplay um and when i spoke to the studio and the producers and everybody made that quite clear and they were very enthusiastic about that and um and kind of loved the things that i wanted to do i didn't want the story to be linear i wanted it to begin at the end of the film and and for us to kind of meet uh in the middle and so you start with the spanking and you have these Um, sort of flashes that go throughout the film. You know, because we had a problem in the third act, I felt like that if you moved times, Mm -hmm. that might help the situation. Um, I wanted to take the inner goddess out and, you know, all of her monologue, Dakota's inner monologue, sorry, Anna's inner monologue. and, um, And they were cool with that. And they kind of, you know, I wanted to remove a lot of the dialogue, I felt like it could be a really sexy film if there wasn't so much talking in it. And so that's really the script that I initially delivered. Um, and, And it was quite dark, I think, the first draft that I wrote as well, it very much concentrated on Christian's pain. And I I think at that point, you know, when I delivered that script was when I realized that all of the, uh, you know, all of them saying, yeah, absolutely, this is what we want. And you can write anything you like and get crazy and get artistic with it was (laughs) utter, utter bullshit. And, you know, rightly so. Erica was like, I don't, this isn't what i what i want it to be it and i and i don't think that this is uh the film that the fans are looking for and whilst it was artistic and and i was really happy with that draft um i i you know i listened to what she said and and erica was actually really good you know we she she ended up coming into my house for a week and we kind of wrote uh side by side and put things back in but she would always let me argue and she would always let me fight for things that i felt passionate about and in the end we ended up with a draft that i think was sort of you know like halfway you know it was a, it was a halfway compromise but she had still been very brave about what she had let let go
1: mm-hmm.
3: um and ultimately, Erica did have all of the controls. So there wasn't ever going to be a point where the producers of the studio could step in and say, no, no, we're going with this right. first draft.
2: Well, I guess there was also problems and tensions uh, because of what Sam has intimated in the press and that Erica has somewhat confirmed in the press that there was a clash between yeah. the two of them. Mm-hmm. And it's true. I think the problem for Sam was that Erica simply wanted the book filmed in a way with no variations or rethinking of structure, for example. Right. And when you see how faithful the movie is, it, to maybe a fault, you know, well, what do you do as the director on that when you you have a job to do? You have a job to fulfill this version, but at, at the same time, you are in a way straightjacketed by the creator yeah. of this material. And the problem in the end is that I always thought it could be a really, really terrific movie, mm-hmm. that it could be real and that these kids could be real and that you could you could really excise the glossy fantasy element of it and do it as – what would this guy be as as a 27-year-old American billionaire? What would this girl be like? This interesting dynamic between these two characters, making it real, making it funny, making it maybe naturalistic, yeah. making it a really good movie because – the problem is that no one really liked the movie, you know? I mean, A.O. Scott in the New York Times called it, quote-unquote, a terrible movie. <laughs> and that was a huge missed opportunity on everyone's part because, right. you know, because you're going to make the money anyway. You're going to make a lot of money no matter what you do. Right. So why not make a good movie out of this? Why not make a movie that makes people look at the 50 Chase brand differently, perhaps elevated, maybe prove people wrong, that there is something in the book that is interesting. I mean, you know, The Godfather isn't a good novel. Jaws isn't a good novel. The Exorcist isn't a good novel. The list goes on and on. But the people who adapted them knew what they were doing, knew how to move around the material, knew how to excise, you know, certain things that were not going to be cinematic. But there is also the realization, the suggestion from a few key creative figures in the making of Fifty Shades of Grey, that it didn't really matter if it was good or not, that it was just something to be made to keep selling the Fifty Shades brand. T-shirts, clothing, jewelry, toiletries, cosmetics, wine, sex toys, nail polish, Benoit balls, handcuffs, lube, $90 teddy bears dressed like Christian Grey, moisturizers, masquerade masks, bras, baby clothing. When did you realize that... This is what you were kind of up against as part of this team going in making this movie. What do you do as a creative, let's say?
3: Yeah, there, w- I, there was a very definite moment where I was like, you know, we, we were weeks away from shooting. The, the, the Sam was now on board. And, and it was clear that that, that was going to be a struggle, you know, between the, – the, there was going to be a struggle. It's very difficult to come on as a director and be – handcuffed in that way and not be able to fulfill your creative vision because there is because there are certain restrictions on you but at the same time i would argue that it was very clear that that was the way it was going to be so then don't sign on to the movie you know like it right. it was always going to be that i um i think i realized you know that we were trying to go to production with a script that was now because the th- a third voice had come into the room was now very much not ready And then suddenly, I I can't remember what the conversation was, but there was a conversation and I realized, oh my God, this isn't about this isn't about the movie. This is about the fact that there are Audi cars being lined up to be you know, uh, put out on this date. There are toys, there's merchandise, and there's all of this stuff that's so much more financially um, rewarding than the film, and they all have to hit this date. So this movie is going to get shot no matter what is on the page because it has to be out by a certain date in order to fulfill the huge, massive conglomerate that is surrounding it it actually isn't even about the film anymore and i think all those big franchise massive tentpole movies are the same and you know batman has to come out on a certain date because there are batman toys or you know there are things that are absolutely nothing to do with the movie that are rolling down the line and there is no stopping those things and um I just haven't ever been in that situation as a creator before. But and maybe that's because I've never signed on to an enormous, enormous right. movie before. Yeah. But I get it. You know, and and it was a really interesting lesson and there wasn't I wasn't angry about that. I was just like, Oh oh mm. my god, of course. Right. This makes total sense now and now I know and then, you know, next time if I ever decide to do something like this again then you have to realise you're just a cog in a Machine, You're not – this isn't – it's not the same as saving Mr. Banks. This is not going to be my vision and not everybody's going to respect every word I put on that page. <laughs> right, know? right,
0: right. It's going
3: to be a very different experience. But a, a, an interesting one nonetheless, and I – Fifty Shades, you know, really taught me a lot about what I, what I do and don't want to do with my career or what I can and cannot handle uh, because I'm quite, I'm quite a sensitive person. And, and a lot of what happened on Fifty Shades really broke my heart in a way that it shouldn't when you're signing on to that big studio movie. You have to be, I think you have to be made of different
2: stuff right, than I right, am. right. Well, the studio originally wants Ryan Gosling, but he doesn't want to do it. Neil yeah. James wants Rob Pattinson, who she based the character on, but of course he doesn't want to do it either. She also said that she would never have casted the two most popular choices on social media Ian Summerholder and Matt Bomer because she didn't think they were good enough actors for Christian. Garrett Hedlund is an interesting choice, but he turns it down as well. And so does Charlie Hunnam, who then um, changes his mind when he takes another meeting, I guess, with Focus and Universal and talks to the director. And once he auditions with Dakota Johnson, uh, Hunnam admitted that he was psyched and into the project. Now, the rumor is, and this has been widely talked about without Hunnam confirming this, is that Hunnam is also a screenwriter. And he was not only giving copious notes, but he was also actually rewriting the script, which was driving E.L. James crazy, and that it finally escalated to him wanting to leave the project or maybe being let go. Did you hear anything about that at all?
3: Yes, um, that, that's the point at which I um, left the project. Um, I, I, I know that Charlie had a lot of notes. Um, I know that he uh, f- he felt that the, ca- the character of Christian w- wasn't there for him in the way that he needed him to be. And I think that's when Patrick got brought on. Um, and that's really all I know about that. The mm-hmm. rumors about whether Charlie wrote it with patrick or or without i don't know um and charlie is a screenwriter and he has there i think he's written like a vampire van helsing script or Mm -hmm. something like that interestingly so i i leave at that at that point and 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 it was really difficult because i wanted to be allowed to address charlie's notes or at least talk to him about them and and that so there was definitely a divide at that point and that certainly wasn't going to happen but weirdly i bumped into charlie two nights ago in london um and because I, I keep seeing him around and it's so strange that he had quite a big impact on my life and he doesn't know that it's me that he's he's looking at so i uh, <laughs> i introduced myself the other night and he was like
0: oh hi <laughs>
3: and um we we it was very sweet we hugged it out in a restaurant um and he was very lovely and very kind and i know and he was saying actually um at the dinner that he was so sad to leave the project um because he he had really really bonded with sam and really liked sam a lot so i think he he had felt that he had really wanted to do it for her but um yeah he and i kind of well,
2: you know, well, well, what ultimately happened was that a new list of actors was drawn up. Uh, I think it included Alexander Skarsgård at one point and Scott Eastwood. And finally, Jamie Dornan gets the role. Um, they're not paying a lot of money for anyone playing Christian or on a stage. I think about 150 dollars fifty K a piece. You know, Jamie Dornan has become a kind of low-key icon among gay men. He's got a great look. And in Fifty Shades, you know, he's naked and bucking and whipping. But we, we never see him have an orgasm, though we do see Dakota have a, one or two. And on the first viewing, he seemed extremely... It was noticeable how reticent he seemed. Now, on a second viewing, that reticence kind of works once, you get, once you've sorted the movie out. And it kind of... This, I think, what might have been a natural reticence for Jamie kind of works in favour of the movie now. What did you think of Jamie in that? And did you sense it at all when you watched it?
3: <laughs> um, I have not seen the movie Fifty Shades of Grey. When I say my... I, my heart really was broken by mm-hmm. that process I really mean it and yep. I, and that, so I don't see it out of any kind of like bitterness or anger or anything like that it's just I don't I, I don't feel like I can watch it without feeling some pain about you know how different it is to what I initially wrote and also how um How, I don't know, how kind of separated... We were were a very, very tight team in the beginning of that process, and and it all became very sort of disparate towards the end, so I haven't... I actually haven't seen
2: it. Um, I got into trouble with my reaction toward Matt Bomer as a fan favourite on social media with a surprising amount of women not knowing he was gay. When I posted a series of tweets about how Bomer would be a distraction in this movie because he is openly gay and that in this moment, not... Five years down the road, but in this moment, it just throws everything out of whack. A distracted conversation would appear, kind of enshrouding the movie. And I knew that there was no way that Universal or Focus were going to let that casting happen. And I was transparent about this, but, you know, of course, wildly attacked as being a gay homophobe, which is what happens when you're a gay man who doesn't go along with the politically correct sentimental narrative of the gay status quo. The Christian, are you gay scene? I mean, what happens with that? I guess the question is, is a woman, knowing the actor is gay, openly gay with a husband and a few kids, less likely to fall into the fantasy of it all? I mean, I never said that gay actors can't play straight roles. But of course, again, that's the more dramatic, sentimental narrative reimagining the meaning of my my tweets. And also, of course, it was just an opinion. It was just my opinion. I, I was in no position to hire or not hire Matt Bomer. But I said in this particular case, we aren't there yet. And certainly Universal is not there yet with this particular franchise. And Neil James said she didn't care if Bomer was gay or not. She just didn't think he was the right actor for this. And as a gay man, I didn't think I was saying anything that provocative. But what do you think about this? Would that be a distraction to you while watching the film, knowing that, well, the actor is gay, so I can't fully fall into the fantasy of what I'm watching and what I'm supposed to be reacting to? Do you think that would have been a... Overused talking point when it comes to 50 Shades of Grey.
3: I actually really don't think it would have become a talking point. And, and weirdly, I do think we are there. I, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think we are there. And I think the proof of that was just looking at how insane Twitter was over the Ian Summerholder, Matt Bomer thing. Mm-hmm. And I think it actually came out in the end that Matt Bomer was the, f- you know, they did a poll mm-hmm. and Matt Bomer came out. Just heads and shoulders but yeah. but you know ahead of everybody else um so I think your answer's there, and that's with the fifty shades fandom but
2: I don't think any of them what I kept coming up against constantly in social media is that none of the women knew he was openly gay i, I never got that I, I kept getting what I kept getting was why are you talking about Black Bomer gay who knew and it would be a, the message boards would be you know my feet would be filled with this. So I think there was not really, it was a kind of a low key um, that really wasn't on anyone's radar. And right. so when that happened, so I, I don't know. I mean, I think maybe that so was... So you
3: outed Matt Bomer, basically. Matt Bomer was already out, very <laughs> out with, <laughs> his,
2: with his husband and their children. And, um, you know, ultimately, I mean, what do you see as your job as the screenwriter? Because, you know, you, you haven't directed yet, though you are going to. What are you supposed to be doing as the screenwriter? Because it is a director's medium. And I find it kind of strange in most cases when people say the movie lives or dies by the script. The script is certainly a part of it. But movies are a visual medium, and it really is about the mood and atmosphere the director brings to it. You know, certainly there are no $40 million episodes of a TV show, so Fifty Shades looks a certain way. You can see the money on the screen. In TV, you are mostly aware of the lack of money on the screen, and on TV... the writer is the auteur. In movies, the director is. TV is all about selling information, movies are about atmosphere. So in movies, screenwriting is a job where you are working for the vision of the director, and it really is the director who controls the destiny of the film. The director is responsible for how the writing comes off and how the acting comes off. The writer is kind of a helpless bystander, which is why screenwriters usually become directors. What is your take on this?
3: Yeah, it's a really interesting one because I've worked uh, in in different ways on this. So, you know, I've, I've written a script, Saving Mr. Banks, which has then been handed over to a director who has then put his vision on that script. And I've worked on movies that, uh, you know, where a director wants to work with you side by side so that you are putting his vision into the script right from day one and I've worked on movies that are shooting where the script is going wrong and so you're working alongside the director but you're right it is always about the direct. ultimately it's always about the director's vision and that's a very difficult thing as a screenwriter when you and a director don't have the same vision it's very hard to kind of watch your baby wander off and oh, be yes. turned into yes. Uh, something
2: you, yes. as you know it's the informers this yeah movie of mine yeah.
3: did you tell what what happened uh
2: well what happened was i had written the best script i've ever written yeah <laughs> with the, my writing partner then it was uh, uh nicholas jurecki who went on to run direct arbitrage um, yeah and we wrote this really i will have to say amazing script and because it was an amazing script we got $20 million to make the movie. Now, that, this is in the old days where you could have a high-end independent movie, maybe cost that. Uh, this was right before the death of all of that occurred. And so, well, I mean, I've talked about this. And in fact, Nick and I did a post-mortem on the Informers on this podcast. What happened was that the director, who we thought was the right person to shoot the movie, ultimately saw it a different way, as did the producer who had all the control, who, had the, who, who was paying everybody the person who was paying everybody. Yeah. And so they did their own edits, and it just was completely unrecognizable from what Nick and I did. So, you know, it happens. But it is different, and I've noticed for working, writing for television, writing for movies, for television I'm much more aware of the information, of the storytelling, and also having written the season of something that wasn't filmed. I mean, it's a different kind of writing style. Uh, you, you are dispensing information. Each scene is moving forward to the next episode and it all kind of has to be locked down before shooting the first episode even begins and it really is about information you're giving out information information movies you have the freedom to not have to be so enthralled to that idea i just finished directing these ads for for persol where i was extremely aware of the control i had over Everything about this project, even though the idea wasn't mine, I mean, it really becomes, you know, your set. You are the the overriding vision. The other thing that I was thinking of is the notion of the screenwriter as, you know, some kind of tortured – put upon soul who who gets so raped and fucked over all the time and yes they do you yeah know, it's <laughs> it is it is in itself a kind of ridiculous job on, in a lot of ways and you know no one holds a gun up to anyone's head to become a screenwriter no and don't you think that like movie dialogue is for the most part ridiculous and fake any way you kind of look at it i mean even in great movies if you just look at the dialogue i mean it's it's fake talk and You need to give it a bit of a spin as a screenwriter, but it really is up to the actors and it's up to the director to kind of make it all work, to sell the things that you've you've written. People don't talk that way in real life. They talk like that way in a movie. So you've got to conform to this this thing that is happening between the people on the screen. You've got to fit into a movie, and it's not real. And I keep remembering that the the veteran... Screenwriter and filmmaker Walter Hill once said that the most absurd thing I can think of is a properly motivated character. Right. Do you get that? A lot yeah, that? I
3: do. I mean everything you're saying is right and I and I and often and my big problem with screenwriting is fake movie dialogue. Like I I it drives me absolutely insane. And so I will it's probably the thing I spend most of my time on is trying to naturalize dialogue and 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 make it sayable and make it sound like something real people say and obviously you know i know i have the credit on 50 shades of gray but that that's i'm not referencing that i am referencing other works um and, and movies are by their very nature um odd and and not real life and i think that's why we go to movie theaters and watch them and lose ourselves in them it's like we don't wa- i don't want to go and see a conversation between two people on a bus that is like my natural everyday life that i can do i want to go into a movie theater and i want to pay my money and i want to eat popcorn and i want to escape into some kind of fantasy world and i think that is why you have to have characters with motivation like walter says and stories and you know arcs and all of the stuff that you have in movies um he's he's right in one way but it doesn't drive me mad i think it is a skill and i think it is an art and i don't think you know nobody holds your head a gun to your head and says be a screenwriter but at the same time it is a it's a very tricky job as you know and it's very difficult and then piling on top of that the the amount of control that other people then have over the thing that you've sweated blood and tears over is is what makes one tortured
2: Well, you know, you said that you basically learned about screenwriting by watching every episode of The West Wing (laughs) in that dying video shop you were working in. But see, this is the thing, and and I've talked about it with a lot of screenwriters on this. I mean, do you believe that screenwriting can be taught, or are those days – Well, are those days over with the collapse of a certain kind of movie being made by the studio? I mean, on the podcast, we've talked about the screenwriting guru like Sid Field, for example, who gained a lot of traction in the 1980s when there was the possibility for everyone to make a lot of money as a screenwriter with the fall of the auteurist cinema of the 1970s. And the idea that there is a formula for a successful movie became gospel in Hollywood, especially with the people who took over from the filmmakers, like producers and studio executives and agents and lawyers, and that a film had to have the three act structure and this became kind of gospel where the plot has to be set up within the first 20 minutes and then that the main character experiences what field called a plot point that provides them with a goal to achieve half the movie's running time should focus Field suggests on the character's struggle to achieve this goal the second act should be the quote-unquote confrontation period on page 60 of what should be a 120-page script, there should also be something Feel calls the midpoint. The midpoint should be the devastating reversal of the main character's fortune. Now, the third act should depict a climactic struggle by the protagonist to finally achieve his goal. Now, you can either think as a writer that this is all quite obvious, or you can think this is so formulaic that people should now be ignoring this. And, you know, people like Quentin Tarantino believe that you should just tell the story. You know, you want to tell anyway, just go ahead and write And that following the Sid Field guidelines now suggests a very different movie era in this new DIY kind of culture that we all find ourselves in. And it would kind of like erase something like, what would Sid Field make of boyhood? I mean, what would Sid Field make of Birdman or Gone Girl? Movies with strange structures and – or the Richard Linklater movies, the Before Sunrise movies, the Before – you know. So you do not think screenwriting should be taught –
3: I mean, I I can only speak for myself, but I think screenwriting should be felt, so I feel my way through a draft. I don't go, oh, I'm at the end of the first act and I need to have a turning point, or I'm at the end of the second act and I need to now destroy my character's life so that we can build it back up in the third act. I mean, I just don't... I do think in terms of acts, but I don't, I, I don't think about, like, am I hitting the right note on the right page? I just allow... You know, I don't outline, which is something that I've spoken um, about a lot in Q and As and and, on various different things. Um, And I just allow my, which is you know a hard thing, but I just allow my characters to tell me where they want to go and what's happening to them. For me, it's all about character and it's all about like who is this person, where are they going, what do they want. Um, and then And then the kind of story fits around that right um, you know I, saving Mr. Banks has a really, really difficult structure because mm-hmm. it goes between you know two time periods of somebody 's life, but at the same time, I never felt that it was difficult. I just felt it right um, and I felt when the right moments were, and i just don 't think you need to save the cat anymore. And I don't know... I mean, I I haven't read those screenwriting books. Maybe I'll pick one up tomorrow and call you up and say I need to come back on and say, that you know, they're the most brilliant thing ever. But I don't know that those kind of things work i i really did feel my way and learn to write by listening to aaron sorkin and and you know other screenwriters that i admired and watching how they put things together and structured them and i actually learned movie writing from watching a tv show so because i felt like each episode of the west wing was its own tiny little three act you know movie but yeah, I don't uh, a screenwriting school. I don't know. Mm. I, I mean, it's either in you or it isn't. It's right. like saying to you, you know, did you go to school to learn how to write American Psycho? I mean, it's just no. ridiculous.
2: No, it, it, you're right. You feel it. Yeah. you have to feel it to, yeah. to make it work, or else it's just like a job.
3: Yeah, and you have to want to do it right. as well. Like it's it's a horrible job, as you and I both know. It's really- it is it
2: is mostly horrible. And the and the thing that you realize as it happens over and over is that. It really is in the director's hands. You just hope the director doesn't fuck it up. Right. And that is why I think why so many screenwriters ultimately want to turn to directing. Right. I know that I, I never really thought about that 10 years ago, but now it's completely on my mind all the time with every project that I initiate.
1: A fear, I don't care, cause I've never been so high. Follow me through the dark, let me take you past our satellites. You can see the world you brought to life To life So love me
2: here's a quick rundown of the origin story Kelly Marcel is from the UK and her father's a film director and her sister's an actress Marcel is bored in school and her grades are terrible which is a common theme on this podcast with just about every artist musician filmmaker and writer who has been on I was just bored I didn't care everyone is quoted as saying Marcel drops out of school at 15 to become an actress but she ultimately finds it horrendous and hates doing it so Kelly finds herself working in a video rental store the dying days of that industry and since so few people are coming in anymore to rent videos she just watches movies movies and TV series all day, and that's where she begins to learn her craft as a writer. Around the corner from the video store, the actor Tom Hardy, our new Mad Max, runs a workshop for actors, and Marcel and Hardy meet and become friends. Hardy is also making a movie at the time, the prison drama Bronson, written and directed by Nicholas Winding Refn, who will later go on to direct Ryan Gosling in Drive. And it is Tom Hardy who wants Marcel to rewrite the Bronson script, which he does as an unedited rewrite. Marcel also has written an original script called Westbridge, set in a small Texas town, and follows the lives of six workers on death row at a local prison. Could this have been part of the reason why she got the Bronson gig? And she comes up with the idea for Terra Nova, a TV series about a family transported to prehistoric times. The family travels 85 million years into the past to an earth of a parallel universe to escape the dystopian present of the 22nd century. Terra Nova is really a kind of homage to the science fiction and fantasy work that her filmmaker father has been drawn to, and she is going to sell it to British TV when her agent begs her to go to Los Angeles and try and sell the show there, which she does, as well as selling Westbridge as a TV show, too. But the Terra Nova thing is big. She tells it to Fox, and Steven Spielberg attaches himself as producer, and since Fox is going straight to series with Terra Nova, meaning that there will be no development process or just a pilot shot, but an entire season will be shot and aired. Marcel is asked to write 13 episodes in a deal with her also as executive producer that is worth about $300,000 per episode. And Marcel backs away, though as creator of the show, she is one of four credited writers on the pilot. Terra Nova becomes the most expensive TV series up until that time and only lasts one season on Fox before being canceled. But first off, I want to know, what were the problems Tom Hardy was having with the Bronson script? (laughs)
3: Um, You know, this is happening more and more, actually, in this industry. It's completely bizarre. People are going into production with scripts that aren't ready. I mean, and literally are not finished, that don't have a third act. It's just completely crazy. Bronson... um, they, they went into production on a, on a script that wasn't ready, just as simple as that. And I think Nick and um, Tom were shooting in the first week and suddenly realized um, realised this and that, that Tom's character didn't have an arc. And the whole of that theater sequence throughout Bronson was not in the script at that point. There was a different storyline that was about um, Bronson meeting the craze. And so Bronson kind of wasn't Bronson. It was Bronson and the Craze. And I and I, and I just think belatedly they sort of realised that's not the movie that they wanted to make. And so um, they shut down shooting and I went up to Nottingham and I moved into an apartment right next door to Nick and I would write through the night because they had to carry on shooting as we rewrote. So all of those theatre scenes were going in and being written through like literally through the night and then um being handed to tom five minutes before he shot them on the set so uh, if you've seen brunson that's quite extraordinary and um there's one particular scene in that where he plays both a woman and a man Mm -hmm. um And Nick and I were like, he's just, uh, Nick was like, he's never going to be able to do it. There's no way he's going to be able to do this. And by the way, you've gone mad. (laughs) What the hell is this? And I was like, he can do it. He can do it. Just give him two takes. And if he doesn't do it, I'll step in and, and play the woman, which is like the most horrendous idea in the world. And um, and he did it. Tom's extraordinary. And I don't think – I think there's very few actors that could have coped with the stress and strain of trying to write Bronson while shooting Bronson, and he did. And I think it's an extraordinary
2: well, performance. Well, it is. What, what, what was it so – what was so horrendous about acting for you that you just didn't like doing at all, that you oh. tried it and it just, like, made you just – You were never going to do it. Was it just like the idea of having to be like another person, pretending, the fakeness of it all? Putting on makeup and pretending to be someone else is really what an actor does in a way. And for some people, it's completely effortless. And then for other people, it's like makes their skin crawl.
3: Yeah, it was so, so, so weird. And I was so aware of, you know, I'm talking to you now, and I don't think about like the shapes my mouth's making or, you know, my facial expressions. But I would get in front of a camera, and I'd feel like I was like gurning and (laughs) that's just i couldn't do it um i i found it extremely extremely difficult and look that's not to say i don't know now people start googling it but i um you know like i did some stuff that was good and i won awards um but i just hated it i absolutely hated it and and felt trapped as well i had and i actually didn't become an actress at 15 i became an actress at three so i I,
2: that's right you were in your father one your father's with you being fed to an alien or something like that yeah Yeah. i read about that yeah
3: so you know it had definitely been something that my my showbiz mother had sort of pushed us all into so i i def it definitely wasn't my choice either but i didn't know what else i was going to do i had left school and i had no grades and so i felt very trapped in that world for a bit
2: not to um, belabor it, but I looked around a lot for this answer and I couldn't really find it. Why did you leave Terra Nova and what did you think of the show?
3: Um, I left Nova. well, I, I sold both of those TV shows. and West-
2: Westbridge and Nova. Yeah,
3: okay. and Westbridge was really my passion project. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about the death penalty, and I felt that it was important, and that was the one, you know, so my heart was really with that show, and I had no idea that Nova was going to turn into what Nova turned into. I had no idea we'd go straight to series and that Spielberg would become my producer, and all of that was extraordinary and amazing, But when I actually sat down, you know, and started talking to Fox and 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 everybody about what they wanted the show to be, I realized that it was so different from what I had initially created you know the the show that i created you know was set in uh, set in the same time period but you didn't see dinosaurs right you didn't um, there were no computers and people running around with guns and cars it was really about what happens if the hu- you know we've fucked up our planet so badly what happens if we get another chance will the human race do it again? And the answer is yes, of course we will. (laughs) You know, we Mm. will. Um, Because we're a self-destructive race. And that's really what I was trying to pursue and and look at with that story, whilst also making it exciting and action. It's not that you would never see a dinosaur, but you just might see one, you know, at the end of a season. But really about like what happens if you have a normal family and a, a father who's a worker bee from an office put in this extraordinary situation where you have to build your houses out of sticks, you know. Um, And they they wanted to make something that's very, very, very different. If you've seen the show, it Mm -hmm. just is not that. And the portal that they went through, in my version, was tiny. So you had to crawl through it, which meant that you could only take whatever you could carry in a backpack. You know, and in their thing, they've got tanks and trucks.
2: Right, right,
3: right. And I just felt like... Though I had no money and I was still working in a video store, I felt that if I signed on to write this show, which could potentially be three years of my life, had it gone season Mm -hmm. after season, I would never write again. Interesting. Because I couldn't write that show
2: yeah I, I get it. And so there I was no get it. there was yeah. no
3: acrimony. It right, was all right. fine and, and Brennan Braga, who eventually ended up running the show is a gr- like great great friend of mine. I mm. absolutely adore him. He's wonderful, but they they took it in a different direction and great and good for them and, and I saw some of the show and I think they did you know fu- I think they fulfilled their vision of the show right. um, as best they could. Um, it just wasn't what I wanted to do.
2: You mentioned the show Biz Mom. Your sister's an actress, too. Your father was a filmmaker. Growing up, were you a movie geek? Were you movie mad at all? Were you watching a lot of films? Were you aware of film as an art form?
3: Um, You know, yeah, I remember, you know, our house, in our house, it was funny. My dad was just always, abs- my dad worked on the Pink Panthers, so he was second unit director on a lot of them and um and he was also um the first ad on some of the original ones and so we'd watch a lot of that kind of stuff Uh, or my you know people would be watching seven brides for seven brothers or just old school films Uh, and yeah we did watch movies but i personally remember being in my room in a corner of my room reading books um i just always had my my face in a book And I and I kind of think I was talking to my sister about this the other week, and I know that, yes, the family watched movies and everybody would sit around in the living room. But I don't remember being part of that. I remember very much being alone, being in my own world and and reading intensely. Um, But and also my dad was a film director, so he was never really home. Yeah, yeah. and my mom was an aspiring actress as well. So sh- they weren't really home. So there was a lot of entertaining ourselves that went on.
2: Were there favorite writers that you had when you were growing up? You know, I... <laughs> or that influenced you?
3: Yeah, I was really into like Famous Five and Enid Blyton and um, uh, Adventure Stories. And definitely Dr. Seuss. I remember reading Cat in the Hat over and over and over and over mm-hmm. again, um, kind of weird and wacky stuff. And there was a book called The Faraway Tree. that I remember I can't remember who that was. And then as I got into my teenage years, you became, you know, one of mm-hmm. my favorite writers. And I and um, but yeah, just kind of I'd read everything and just everything that I could get my hands on.
2: Saving Mr. Banks, yeah. which you wrote, is about the relationship between Mary Poppins' author P.L. Travers, played by Emma Thompson, and Walt Disney, played by Tom Hanks, who has been courting Travers for about 20 years, seeking the film rights to Mary Poppins. Travers doesn't want to sign a deal because of her aversion to the Disney brand, and so we're in L.A. for three weeks in 1961, where Travers and Disney battle it out, and this is intercut with flashbacks to Travers' hardscrabble childhood in Queensland, which we find out is... Kind of the inspiration for Mary Poppins, which was actually quite influenced by her father's alcoholism and early death and her mother's subsequent suicide attempt. Travers hates Los Angeles, but she begins to collaborate with the creative team that is developing Mary Poppins. Travers believes that Mary Poppins is the voice of reason, of pragmatism, and is the enemy of whimsy and sentiment. Disney and the team are confused by Travers' disdain for fantasy, since Mary Poppins to them is a fantasy story. But as the movie continues, everyone begins to realize that Mary Poppins is really about Travers' father. And in the end, Travers comes around, grants the rights, and even weeps while watching the finished movie at the premiere at the Grohman's Chinese Theater years later in 1964, though smarter people may see it as Travers' anger over the movie that was made from her life. Uh, this Disney-produced movie doesn't really nudge us in that direction, however. Um, anyway, it's all its all very touching and well-made and sentimentalized. Disney is kindly and exasperated, and we never see him smoking. Writers are depicted as crazy and need to be told what to do, since Disney is always right. But the movie, like a lot of movies do, takes a lot of liberties. Travers told Disney at the premiere that she was not even invited to That He had to take out the animation sequences. Many of the scenes between Travers and Disney never took place. Disney had already secured the rights before Travers arrived in LA. However, it is a movie. It is a metaphor about the creative process and the conflicts in an artist and the stories a writer tells in order to live and move on. And I think Saving Mr. Banks is a reminder that movies based on factual events are telling their own stories, using these events as launching pads for other ideas. So, fact versus fiction in biopics. I mean, last year, The Imitation Game, Selma, American Sniper, The Theory of Everything, all had minor controversies over how they rewrote and reinterpreted actual events and raised the question, how do you deal with the fidelity of the biopic movie? And does it matter? I mean, it's just a take. You are rewriting history when you make any movie, whether it's Lawrence of Arabia or Lincoln. And, you know, saving Mr. Banks got flack for whitewashing Travers and Disney. And it was suspect because it was actually made by the Disney studio. But what is your feeling about this whole notion that everyone is so tied to the fact that if you get anything wrong from the reality of the situation, then somehow you've done something that's corrupt
1: right
3: I mean look that's why it's a, it's a movie it's not a documentary we made a movie and there's right. a very big difference between movies and documentaries and you know all I can say about Saving Mr. Banks is there's a finite amount of research that you can do it's not I don't know what happened in the room with P.L. Travers I can tell you that yes Disney went to London he had a meeting with her in her house he came out with the rights he, he actually hadn't secured the rights before mm-hmm. she came to L.A. Do I know what was said in that room? No, absolutely not. But what I do know is that in truth, Walt Disney had a terrible relationship with his father and that in truth, P.L. Travers also had a very tricky relationship with her dad. And perhaps that was something that they could bond over. Um, I'm sure that wasn't the conversation that happened in that room, you know, but in my imagination and in my take of this story, that's what happened. Do we have to be faithful to the truth? I think, yes, we do, somewhat. I think, you know, if you're, if it's a biopic, you should at least be 90% there, and you should be able to defend the 10% that you are.
2: I completely agree. I have a biopic in pre-production right now called The Golden Suicides, which is about oh, Teresa Blake and... Um, such a great... I mean, great. Jeremy Blake and, and Teresa Duncan, and... I really wanted to be completely faithful to it. The entire script is completely taken from stuff that's verified. Yeah. Um, but there are a series of scenes throughout the movie where they're alone. And something actually did happen in those rooms that led them to do something else. And it really was your – it's your job to kind of figure out what is the most interesting way to do this and still you know, have a fidelity to – the material, the story, and the characters, but I really was—I did not want to write a, a biopic that just went completely off in other directions that had nothing, you know, making up things just for the sake of right. making up stuff. And basically, well, why did I want to write this? I mean, why were you attracted to Saving Mr. Banks? Why was I attracted to The Golden Suicide? I had my own reasons, my own personal connection to it, and I wanted to explore that aspect i didn't really want to get into the paranoia conspiracy theories that she started to come up with later in her life i really saw it as like a love story and yet you know when we had gaspar no was going to direct it at one point he being who he is he Thought my take was somewhat interesting, but he wanted to go into the more salacious aspects of the story, and so so it really is, you know, as you say, it is a completely personal thing. You bring what you want to bring about this story. To the
3: screen. I mean, and I would say that about everything that I write, actually. I I really feel like I don't sign on to anything that I don't think can do something. You know, even with Fifty Shades, I really felt like that abuse story for Christian was an important story to put out Mm -hmm. into the world. And with Saving Mr. Banks, for me, it was about the effect that our parents can still have on us as adults and um, and alcoholism you know is Mm. something that is very personal to me in in my family and was very it was just very important for me to be able to talk about that and so you know going back to what's the truth what's not the truth I think as long as you're finding what's truthful and likely um, for your characters then then you're telling your own truth I mean you know, I think you're being faithful, particularly to those two characters, and I know I know who you're talking about, and I loved that article. I can't remember was it Vanity Fair? Yeah. yeah, it was amazing. Um, you have to find what's truthful and likely, and and kind of protect them in a way because it's completely. you speaking for them after they've gone. Yes, you know. Completely. And I felt that way about PL, but I couldn't be. I felt like I needed to protect her somewhat after she had gone, but I couldn't whitewash it. I mean, you know, I did to a certain extent. She was much more horrible in real life than, mm. than she is in that film, and she's pretty mm. horrible in that film. And mm. also, you know, you mention Walt Disney and the film being made by the Disney company, and I have to say... I had heard horror stories before going in, but I, can't, I have to put my hand on my heart and tell you that they never, ever, mm-hmm. ever tried to make me take anything out. They, right. You do see him smoking in the film. Right. Um, you see him drinking in the film. You know, those are both things that he did. And they were i think incredibly brave actually and um they were I- I extremely faithful to that script if they took anything out it was some swear words because it's a disney film you just can't swear i mean you know right. it's as simple as that but right. really everything else remained as was um and then what you were saying earlier about directors and what happens to your script and i actually think john lee was very very faithful to that script too but in that scene where she's crying at the end mm-hmm it really is ambiguous in the script. You really don't know whether she's crying because it's a catharsis or she's crying because she really didn't like the film. And, and I think it's interesting that he did nudge it in the direction of she's crying, you know, because it's a catharsis and her heart is healing and her dad, and I get it. And and I also love him for doing that and for taking that stand. Mm -hmm. But it is so, it's so interesting to see how something that's on the page that gives a completely different ending can be changed in shooting and in the edit as well yeah yeah
2: Yeah. pitch perfect 2 and mad max fury road dominated the box office with about 120 million dollars between them on on their opening weekend last month and both were praised and mad max somewhat derided for what seemed to some groups like pandering to women for their female-centric takes and mirrored again that the big topic in Hollywood now is sexism and ageism for women. And since then, Maggie Gyllenhaal has gotten a lot of press when she said in an interview that she was told by producers that she was too old at 37 to play the love interest of a 55-year-old actor <laughs> and would not get that role no matter how good of an actress she was. Um, and there was a short YouTube clip that went viral made by Amy Schumer about Julie uh, Louise dreyfus playing herself along with Tina Fey and Patricia Arquette about Julia Louise dreyfuss uh, quote-unquote last fuckable day as an actress, um, they were all kind of like, it had been announced suddenly that that was the day that she would no longer be a fuckable actress, and they, Patricia had already gone through it, and Tina had gone through it, and so they were having a picnic celebrating it. A general awareness of this is kind of louder than ever, I mean, especially when it comes to ageism, and also definitely pay equality. What do you make of all this? Have you, have you experienced any of this, do you think?
3: I mean, you know, I know what it is to be a 40 year old woman walk, you know, going out, uh, in Hollywood and being surrounded by lots of young blonde, (laughs) fucking horrendous (laughs) breath. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not just in movie. I mean, you know, I think it's in movies and TV and with actresses bleeding into real life. You know, it's, this is not a good town to be my age in and single, you know, um, It really isn't. And so I get it. I do. I totally understand it. At the same time, I look at something like Mad Max and Charlize Theron, who's in her 40s, kicking ass, armless. You right, know, with right. no love interest in that movie that True. movie is not a love story yes. and I'm just like yes thank you George Miller that's exactly what we should be that's exactly the message that we should be putting out into the world and Charlize is totally fuckable in that movie yeah she's hot and sexy and I, and I know that also you know he then has the pretty wives right. you know surrounding her but but come on, man. That's awesome. And we should be um, mm. seeing women in their 40s doing, doing yeah. that stuff. And Tina Fey's hot. And Julia mm. Louis-Dreyfus is mm-hmm. hot. You know.
2: Well, it's interesting about the Mad Max thing because we were talking about it a, a couple weeks ago about the men's groups who were complaining about Mad Max Fury Road saying that what it is essentially doing <laughs> is making women more like men and uh, whatever, defeminizing them, whatever the term was, and that Mad Max Fury Road is ultimately kind of a social justice warrior, feminist tract, and and it kind of strays from its roots, its original roots. And I, of course, just completely dismiss that, but I think maybe that conversation wouldn't have been happening for that 48-hour period where the press picked up on these men's groups complaining about Mad Max Fury Road if perhaps there had been a female villain somewhere in that movie to balance things out. If there had been a nasty old granny, you know, (laughs) instead of all of the women in that movie are victims and cast-offs in a way. And I thought it would have been interesting to at least really even out the playing field, let's get a nasty old biker mama up there to really go after them as well. She doesn't have to fight but just just to not make it seem like, you know, you, you bring on Eva Ensler, who wrote the vagina monologues as a consultant. I mean, either that's kind of cool or suggests a pandering or, or, or maybe a cluelessness. Like, we don't know how women are going to react in this situation, so we're going to bring in Eva Ensler to tell us how women are going to react. So, yeah, we have come a bit of a way, but we're kind of still… There, but but at the same time, I mean, Mad Max is hugely works because it's it's kind of it's a piece of art. Yes, you know, getting back to this idea of you know, yes, you being what it's like to be a forty year old woman, which is much like what it's like to be a thirty two year old gay man in West Hollywood. The the the, the, <laughs> the markers are pretty even. Uh, the, the light and visibility is sort of even after a certain point. But, um, you know, I wanted to just get back to this like, this notion, the notion of male, female, male, female. Where is it heading? The men's groups complaining about this. And also some of the light criticism sprinkled throughout the reviews about sexual violence towards women in Fifty Shades of Grey. And mm-hmm. what is the meaning of that? You know, the National Center on Sexual Exploitation petitioned the film's release citing that, quote, unquote, Hollywood is advertising Fifty Shades of Grey as an erotic love affair, but it is really about sexual abuse and violence against women. The porn industry has poised men and women to receive the message that sexual violence is enjoyable. Fifty Shades models this porn message, and Hollywood Cash as the check. Now, this last week, as I often do, I guess, I was watching the trailer of a new James Dean porn film. You know, when I'm bored, I Go onto his site and see what's up with James. Hi, James. And and (laughs) that a sincere growl. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And you know, his new movie is an homage to Fifty Shades of Grey that he wrote and directed called Black and Blue. And James <laughs> I does. Can't wait. James does. You know, he he does. He some his vanilla porn, which is not. It's always kind of hard, but he does his vanilla porn. He does. Uh, I've never seen any of that. <laughs> well, okay, compared to some of the stuff he does in the BDSM yeah, stuff, yeah. where, like, for example, his amateur porn thing, like, win a date with James Dean, apply for a date with James Dean, which is, you know, he has that on his website, and he gets like thirty emails a day from girls, wow. and then they come and they come to, to his place, and he films them and that's not so much that's kind of like but but you're right it is it's rough sex usually Um, you know plenty of hair pulling choking whipping bondage and this is you're right it, it is his most popular porn and it's always consensual james only wants to have fun and so do the girls and there's the disclaimer always on every single clip that the girls w- want to do this james is into it it's all even but this BDSM scenario is really everywhere i mean it's in gay porn it's in girl-on-girl porn it's not the norm necessarily but there's something about it that gets people off i mean is this something innate that we as sexual beings respond to a physical urge rather than a psychological urge i mean when people start complaining about it, and a lot of them are feminists, as they call it non normative sexual practices. I don't know what that even means. I mean, Mm -hmm. is a woman or a gay man more aroused by like a neutered little snowflake sitting on the opposite edge of the bed, meekly asking if he may have permission to touch you, which is really what they want to have happen on college campuses throughout the United Mm -hmm. States. And uh, is there an idea of a more manly man, that kind of man that the women who maybe objected to Jamie Dorman is just innately attractive. It's just innately attractive, just as the ideal of femininity for some men is innately attractive. What do you think of this whole idea of bringing this kind of almost gender neutrality into the conversation?
3: Yeah, I mean, look, I can't, I can really only speak from, I don't know, uh, you know, what goes on in everybody else's bedrooms or how anybody else is feeling about sexuality. I can only really speak for myself as a woman and say that, you know, I, you know, I don't, I really want a man to be a man in, in the bedroom with me. Like, I, I, I like a good spanking like everybody else. I'm not, you know, and I don't, there's nothing abnormal about that. And where I have to absolutely defend Erica is that um, nothing that happens in Fifty Shades isn't, consensual nothing that happens in that book does Anna not get to say yes or no to um, it is her choice um, to to go along with whatever Christian wants and I think also what Erica did with that book, whatever anybody thinks about it was open up sexuality for women and open up a, a discussion place in the bedroom between couples to be able to talk about the kind of thing that you and I are talking about um it's not abuse you know if uh, my boyfriend wants to spank me that is not abuse as far as I'm concerned I'm quite you know and neither does he have to kind of go I'm now going to <laughs> and how do you feel but I but I get that You know, I also understand that porn is so available now that um, there may be some... I worry about um, young, you know, teenagers, particularly boys, watching porn and thinking that that's the norm, you know, and that... Um, women actually look like that for a start you know it's just not true I'm afraid Mm -hmm, (laughs) we don't all look like that and that um that some of the stuff particularly you know some of the stuff that James does is normal and that's what you can do as an 18 year old in the bedroom there there does have to be some form of consent and I think that's where Fifty Shades is um is, is very strong on that point, you know, in the film and or well, the script that I've read and in the book.
2: You mentioned that you like James Dean. Do you have any kind of relationship to erotica or porn? I mean, did you... <laughs> Did you like it? <laughs> you obviously have seen some of James' work. I
3: am. A big fan of James's. Big fan too. of James'. I too. Hey,
2: I am, too. He's got a sport group here.
3: And also, I would really be interested to find out from James what percentage of women are watching his channel and what percentage of men. Because I bet it's a higher percentage. of I bet it's more women I do than too. men.
2: It's much more women because well, – we've talked about this. It, it's overwhelmingly women. Yeah. And men – kind of tune James out because they're either threatened or it's like it's not you know but he does have uh, male fans uh, as well but the reason that I you know first came to know James Dean is because I was sent these articles by my producing partner do you believe who this person is? Does this person really exist? Like, this guy who has this huge teenage girl following.
3: And I think it's overwhelmingly... I think, actually, it's overwhelmingly women watching porn in general as well. And then you look at Fifty Shades again, not to keep bringing it up, but that was women. I mean, you know, women went out and bought that book. Women went out and bought the tickets to the movies. So I think that's a really interesting i think it's a really interesting thing to start talking about that women have a voice sexually
2: finally uh and i'm asking this as someone who i guess you've just gotten back from Cannes. the big question the conversation that dominates this podcast is asking where is movie culture now and what does movie culture mean what part does it play in the national cultural conversation where is it during the year when we're not in awards season mode Is the intelligentsia seen movies? Does the intelligentsia even care about movies? This last Memorial Day weekend, the North American box office was down 18% from last year, and it was a pretty substantial drop. The New York Times just announced that it's not reviewing every movie that opens anymore because there are simply too many movies of too little quality to have the three main critics waste their time reviewing I think Mandela Darga said something like there were a thousand movies that were available now for the New York Times to review. And I also know when I'm looking through, when I'm scrolling around online and seeing what movies are opening Friday, I am confronted with 25 movies opening locally in cinemas Mm -hmm. in Los Angeles. So all of this seems to hint that we're on a path going there. But what do you think is happening to movies as a business and as an art form? And I think part of the thing that is exciting about Cannes for so many cinephiles is that they love films. And they are passionate about them in a way that really makes Americans look like, you know, whatever. Did you get that feeling when you were at Cannes this last weekend? And again, I just would like to hear what you think about this whole idea of the notion of film culture and movie culture and where it's going
3: yeah it 's a really interesting one i don 't i think I felt quite despairing about movies and the industry over the you know i I was kind of like this is all a business it 's all about money it's uh, you know and and how can those that how can that coexist with art and uh, and just feeling very pretty depressed about like it being temple after temple after temple, and then you have a year where Foxcatcher, Whiplash, and Birdman come out, and mm-hmm. my faith is restored. Correct, you know. And I love those films. and And we talk about you know films where we go, oh that wouldn't get made anymore," or "That wouldn't get made anymore." And those three movies did get made, and they're incredible. And so I don't know. I think we're probably in. The, I think people. I think we're probably in the same place we've always been. You know, there are arty movies, and then there are these great big temple movies and you like can like both or you can like one or the other um, I don't know uh, what that means culturally speaking I think that we, I think the thing that I'm finding most interesting is the lack of attention people are giving to movies now. I sit in a movie theater and there are people on their phone um, tweeting or texting. Um, I, I don't ever remember a time when I was younger or I sat in the video shop that I would be doing something else other than being completely engrossed in the thing that I was watching. So I think we watch movies in a yes. different way.
2: And I think that affects the way movies get made as well. The completely. Point.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I and and that's what that worries me. That worries me. And by the way, I'm the same person. I can't sit through a movie. If I'm on my couch in my living room, I will not sit through a movie without checking my phone. And I really hate myself for that. And and I'm and I don't know. I don't know. I really kind of struggle with that. And um, speaking on that going to Cannes, especially with Mad Max, was absolutely incredible because you do, there is this- So you were there
2: as the guest of someone, or were you?
3: I was there with Tom Hardy, but also because I worked on the film, uh,
2: so I didn't know you worked on the film. I did work on the film. Oh, you did! I what yeah. capacity?
3: Um, I went uh, out to Namibia and, and did some uh, some rewrites and some Got Got work it. with Tom and Charlize. Okay. But nothing that I don't. That's a difficult one because I everything that I did was from George Miller's brain. So There right, is right, no right, right. taking any kind of credit for doing anything right, 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 other than just helping some. You right. know, helping get some stuff on the page and helping Got those it. guys with character work. But again, you know, it was a beautiful experience and it was a hard experience, but an amazing one. And so, you know, the studio sent me to Cannes and obviously Tom's a good friend and it was just, it was lovely. It was absolutely amazing to be there and see people treat the movie with such reverence There's a real kind of dignity when you watch movies at Cannes. People, you know, sit there, they don't get their phones out, they're very much engrossed in it, you feel like it's a ritual of some sort. And I was really reinvigorated, just just by the whole festival, just really reinvigorated and inspired and felt like that feeling that I felt when I first started writing, which is anything is possible, and you can put anything on a page and anything can get made, which I haven't been feeling recently in the in the past year particularly just like wow you know what's going to get made as a dc movie or a marvel movie and and that's it so i don't know and i don't know where we i think culturally we're, we're probably you know i'm probably being pessimistic and i think that maybe we're in the same place we were when we were making movies 20 30 years ago
1: what are you